Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome along to Second Captains of the Irish Times. And may I just begin by reading a segment from the Johnny Sexton oh, book. Oh, for God's sake. The weather is just perfect, mid-twenties, but there's only so much sitting by the pool that I can do. So I've been dusting off my French conjugations, can doing upper body weights in the gym, a moment, Murph, and flying through a box set of Game of Thrones. Fantasy has never been my thing, but this is a fairly raunchy, violent fantasy, and I can see why it's so popular. <laughs> I still need my all r- fantasies, Roger. <laughs> I still need my rugby fix, however, and I got it this evening. Lancer's Pro Twelve game against Ulster at the RDS. Oh, it sounds like a, he was having an A one day. Yeah, what's um, wrong? with this another reading from the Johnny Sexton book. Uh, I mean, I you know, I, ju- I just think that it's one thing for you to just really like the book. Okay, that's fine. You don't even really like the book. That's the look on your face now. No, I don't. I, I don't dislike it. I quite like <laughs> well, then it. What the hell? I, Why are we listening to it all the time? I then? don't dislike the book. Yeah. No, it's pretty good. It's really good. Really committing as, to the Yeah, no, it's good as, these, as the... Well, let's, see, we're talking about the book again, Murph. I just wanted to read a passage out and leave it at that. Oh, right. You're okay. the so one it's really my fault. I'm going to start every show this. for uh, until I finish another book. Okay. That'll be another six months. By, by reading out passages from Johnny Sexton's book on the show. Is that okay? It sounds like he was having a great day. What was he just doing? A bit of weights, watching Game of Thrones. But he was injured, you see. He was injured yeah. a lot of last season. Mm. And sounds like, he was studying sounds French like yesterday, was, actually. But where was he? Because the weather was mid 20s. Um, was he in Portugal or something? I don't know. Oh, I mean, he doesn't even know the passage that he's reading out. This is real shabby journalism. Oh, he's in Dubai. And the, the, very, the, the very first part of this, uh, Saturday, 30th of March, very first words are Où est le, uh, le hypermarché, s'il vous plaît? Where is the supermarket, please? Why do they call it a hypermarket? It sounds a bit over the top yeah it sounds yeah I, I, I don't know why but then again you know maybe it doesn't sound that way in French maybe they're asking why why is this market called super to us yeah you know I mean that sounds over the top Peter Mahoney was taken yeah. off against Lancer last week with a suspected concussion he wasn't too happy with the doctor he said it's totally and you know they're, they were being professional they made their call I felt that was okay to go on in fact if you watch the game and people noted at the time he was actually arguing with the referee or asking the referee a couple of questions about you know who, about whatever penalty it was or whatever was going on at the time so he felt that listen if I was 
um, with it enough to be able to argue the toss with the referee, then I should have been able to play on. Anyway, he was taken off. Rob Petty was really strong on this. He says, I treat all these kids as if I'm their father. I would hate for the wrong decision to be made with anyone, uh, uh, any one of them for any injury. That's part of our responsibility as managers of these young men. The concussion thing is an issue that a lot of coaches, I think, are happy enough to avoid. It, it goes on. It's there. Players get concussed. And they're maybe happy enough to not have to talk about this kind of thing in public because it's a tricky one. They always want their players out there the entire time. But um, the more we read about what's happened in America and the more study done into concussion in rugby, the more you see that this is a problem coming down the tracks for the IRB and for everyone involved. Yeah, and I think uh, everyone involved in team sport probably thinks that in general this is a horrible uh, thing and action needs to be taken. But in the specific, my team, uh, I'm a player, that's when people get very, very woolly about their thinking on this. You know, that uh, in, in, if, you're, if you're talking about the sport in general, you know, we got to deal with this. If I'm uh, in a situation 30 minutes into a very important game and I'm taken off and I don't think I'm that badly concussed, then suddenly the concussion issue goes out the window. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, uh, that there is, a culture, there is a cultural thing there that needs to be overcome before... Yeah. Uh, yeah, We will talk more detail about it in just a couple of minutes, so I'll just hold it here for the time being. We're chatting baseball with US Murph today, and it's Moneyball. Okay, not so much baseball as Moneyball. Billy Bean at the Oakland A's. Mm-hmm. You read the book. A lot of people would have read the book or seen the movie a few years back. He's still going strong. They don't win championships, the Oakland A's, but they compete on a relative shoestring because of this system that they have of identifying um, players. Well, I'm simplifying it here, yeah. but identifying uh, qualities in players via statistical analysis that it seems the other clubs miss out. I don't know why but the I others haven't the just caught up. That, that, exactly that, that yeah. he'd sort of start, started an arms race in sort of analysis, which had resulted in everybody essentially implementing the same techniques, and therefore you would have thought erasing his. Maybe he's. Advantage. I don't know. Maybe he's refined it somewhat. Yeah, maybe he's remains ahead of the game. New Kildare manager Jason Ryan is going to be on the show later on. And P. Bezo is back. I know you're it's excited back. about that, Murph. It's back on. And uh, yeah, we, we have a couple of doozies, so I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I think we should, probably should have started the show with that rather than another uh, extract from Johnny Sexton's book. But I mean, hey, whatever. Johnny Watterson has been writing some really good pieces for the Irish Times on the issue of concussion and rugby. joins us in studio now. And Bernard Jackman, coaching at Grenoble in the French Top 14, has suffered a number of concussions in his playing days. Wrote about that in his book a few years back and he joins us too. Johnny, just in your piece, there was an interesting point you made here saying concussion like other issues such as drugs and sport and Hawkeye may be suffering from fatigue syndrome. I think what you're getting at there is that it's a really important issue but some people, maybe even people listening to the chat we're about to have are kind of thinking, ah, concussion, yeah, yeah, that seems to be talked about quite a bit now and maybe they're kind of bored by it. Is that worrying? Yeah, I think that is the case. And the the more people talk around concussion, the less interested they become. I think until there are very deliberate and very uh, sort of strong moves made in rugby to to cut out concussion, I think people will be uh, disinterested. You lose their attention. I think that the way it is at the moment is confusing. It's confusing for players, it's confusing for doctors, and it's confusing for tournaments. Uh, you have a f- five-minute trial going on with the IRB at the moment at international level. And in Ireland, uh, in the ERC, the Heineken Cup, and in the Rabo Pro 12, neither of them use the, fa- the five-minute concussion bin. And you have to ask yourself, if the IRB are, are doing this trial, why are the two pr- prominent tournaments in Ireland not using it? 
Um, they say that they are waiting for the results of the trial before they use the five-minute concussion bin. But my view would be that they know it's nonsense and the five-minute concussion bin doesn't tell a doctor anything about a player who may or may not have concussion. And there is research to suggest that that's the case or there are certainly prominent people saying that five minutes isn't enough. Well, Dr. Barry O'Driscoll resigned from his position in the IRB uh, last year. Uh, he said that the IRB are trivialising concussion. He said that there is no doctor in the world that can determine that the player has concussion in five minutes on the side of the pitch. Uh, you can look at a player in an extreme case and know the player is concussed because he's dizzy, he's incoherent. But if you get a mild case of concussion where the player seems fine, you don't know what's going to happen to that player in eight hours' time when he goes home, when he goes to bed, when he starts throwing up, when he starts having severe headaches. So Barry O'Driscoll resigned because he saw it was nonsense. Uh, Bernard Jackman has obviously suffered from concussion during your career, Bernard, and you have spoken openly about this. What are your thoughts on that five-minute been it, does that sound uh, yeah I, I hate it to be honest really? I, I yeah I just think it's absolute madness I, uh, I suppose I actually didn't even I, I presumed everyone realized that concussion was a big uh, big thing in sport and, and I suppose when I when I wrote my book you know I I didn't think that that was going to be one of the big things that came out of it uh, you know I took for granted that people uh, knew that it was a, obviously a high collision sport and, and that you can't be, you know, uh, falling around one week and play the next week without, um, you know, running, run, running yourself at risk. And, um, obviously I, I got involved in, in trying to, uh, build awareness, you know, in 2010, um, around the book. And then, you know, and one of the big things I pushed for was a longitudinal study on, on concussion in rugby because all the data we, we're working off is, is based around NFL and unfortunately for me I actually I think it's valid data because concussion is concussion you know it doesn't matter whether it's an NFL rugby or you fall off your bike um, but I, I still felt that it was important we got some data uh, to help people understand you know it's not an issue to be messed around with and how how um, common it is in rugby and all contact sports have concussion um, but if you think about it you know guys are bigger more powerful faster with better technique than ever before and, you know I'm a bit of a hypocrite because my job is I'm a collision coach here as well in Grenoble and my job is to make guys make bigger collisions and I, I understand that you know the, the end product of that is going to be more more injuries and, and more higher risk of concussion but Is that something you have to wrestle and, with Bernard having uh, suffered from it yourself? No, I, my job is to is to make players uh, as powerful as possible and to be able to win collisions, um, whether it's in defence or attack. Um, what I got to wrestle with is is how we look after players after, you know. And there's not one player who would who would who would say that, you know, um, they want to be less powerful, they want to uh, win this win this game lines. Uh, what I got to make sure is that, you know, as a as a club, you know, we look after them properly when when they're concussed. Um, and and when I was a player. Um, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to basically hit the ball as hard as I could or, or hit somebody else as hard as I could. And that's part of why the game is popular and that's why you start to play the game for some, for a lot of people. So I don't think that's going to change. I wouldn't want that to change, you know what I mean? But I, what I want is the more awareness of, of, uh, how, how to treat it and how to, how to recover from it. And for me, the big problem with this concussion being is, um, is that young kids, you know, and our amateur players, see professionals being able to go off for for five minutes and come back on. And for me, that trivializes the injury, you know. Um, for me, if there's any risk of a guy being concussed, you know, he shouldn't be going back on the field that day. I would argue that, you know, he shouldn't be going back uh, the following week, you know, at least 
until he's passed certain um, medical tests. But certainly to, to, for a guy to be able to come off concussed uh, or to be blatantly concussed in a game um, and, and stay on is sending the wrong message to, to kids, you know. And, and unfortunately, like, at amateur level and at school level, from my experience, for example, I coached in St. Michael's, you know, concussion was treated very seriously there. Every kid had to go straight across to St. Vincent's, you know, to be checked out. Obviously, it's very close to school and whatever, but... And what I don't want and what I would hate to see is, um, in fairness, professionals have good medical care, so we're a little bit uh, more fortunate. So if we were to have a problem, you know, you know, that night or whatever, we generally have a doctor on hand or the next morning we get looked after. But it's not the same for, for kids or for amateur players who might have to go to work or go to school and maybe, uh, you know, they put it on the long finger getting it checked out and that, that may be too late. And I just want to make sure that... Uh, professionals are a little bit separate, different, whatever. We still got to look after them, but the message I would be saying is that you know treat concussion seriously. Just because you're not cut and you don't you don't have stitches or you're not in a cast um, doesn't mean you're not injured. You know, and if anything, it's it's much more serious injury because bones will heal, you know, scars will scars will heal. Um, but you know, you're, you're not sure what damage you're doing to your brain. Bernard, I I agree that the the game knows concussion is a serious. A serious thing to deal with, but what I'm saying is the way they're dealing with it is is totally confused. I don't yeah, think sure. that they know how to address the pitch situations. You've coach who needs to win the match because his job's at risk, and you have those dynamics and getting over those dynamics and having someone coming in removed from it, not under any of those pressures, needs to sort it out and remove the player. Not for five minutes, but any suspicion of a concussion. The player needs to be taken out. And I think it's difficult to do that with the, the constraints put on the players, the coaches and the doctors. And I think they need to get around that. And the five-minute bin just isn't doing it. And we had, we had the situation of George Smith in the Lions Tour, which I'm sure you, you watched. And, you know, I, I suppose if, if, if you believe that hard cases make bad law, then this is a point in case. But it certainly discredited the IRB's five-minute concussion bin because everyone in the world saw him being lifted off the pitch by two people and pushed back on five minutes later. And I think now it's generally seen as a disgrace that that happened. Yeah, I'd agree with you 100%, Johnny. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm saying that it's a, it's a massive issue. I actually think it's worse. I, I think it's worse than it was in 2010 when there was no concussion bin. Um, you know, so for me, I was very frustrated that obviously spoke up about it, you know, um, admitted my own um, failings in the whole area. And then they bring in something to rectify a problem and it's actually more dangerous. Like, I was never badly concussed enough that I couldn't commit to the doctor after five minutes. I was fine. You know, that was, and that was just me. So I, I, I used to know when I, was, when I had concussion and I used to pretend it was a stinger or it was winded or whatever. And I knew if I could just buy myself a minute um, I would be able to convince anybody I was okay. And I wouldn't be 100%, but I'd probably be able to get through the game or, or, or until, you know, I was, I was due to be taken off. Um, and that was just because the more concussions you get, the more confidence and uh, stupidness you have that you can actually you can actually beat it. But you don't know the damage you're doing um, to yourself, and it's just not a safe place to be. To be on a rugby pitch, you know, uh, without 100% uh, spatial awareness uh, or reactions, Speed isn't a, isn't a good place to be, and I I know John Fogarty, you know, who retired after me because of, because of concussion. I mean, you know, he he came back out in the second half in a game in Italy. Um, you know, he didn't remember any of the halftime. He actually was left behind in the dressing room. All your members are staring at the ground. Someone shouting, "Fog, fog!" You're supposed to be out there. He ran out the tunnel, um, and within 30 seconds, 
as you said, he got another bad bang, you know, um, and that was the end of it. And he never, he never was able to come back. You know, uh, again, there's no science behind this, but I would guess that the reason he got the second bad bang is because, you know, he wasn't aware of, of how to tackle, how to how to clean out a rook, and he was more susceptible to it. You know, so mm-hmm. the fear for me, I, I think that if if there's a suspicion, if there's ever a suspicion that you're concussed, you know, you should be taken off anyway. You know, because the, for the, the symptoms to be bad enough to be the suspicion more than likely you are, you know, um, and for me, that would be the, the case, you know, I remember once a, a referee, you know, said, listen, you got to go, you're, you're not right, you know what I mean, he actually said, he, he made a call that I had to, had to come off, um, but that would be a more, uh, a safer way of doing it, saying that, rather than saying, get him off in five minutes and make a decision, I would actually go to the other side and say, listen, if it's, if it's a suspicion, take him off. Uh, yeah, uh, Bernard, it seems to me that that would take a certain amount of pressure off the medical people here, because they're in a situation where the clearly the coaches really want to win they want those players out there the player will always say um, as Peter Mahoney did the other day listen I'm fine I can play on so uh, that puts the doctors in a, in a difficult enough situation they're going to be professional about it but it, it's hard for them to prove in five minutes I would have thought that there's definitely concussion but it's, it's easy for them to say well I suspect there may be concussion at which point the player just goes off and yeah exactly for sure for sure and then it's over once you're off the field and honestly 10 minutes, inside, ten minutes sitting on the bench, and you've got a spitting headache, or you've got no memory. You then kind of, you then you miss that. Okay, it's better for me not to be out there. It's better for the team. Um, but when you're actually in that, you, you know, um, when you're in that, you think, well, I I need to stay on here. I need, um, I need to be in this game. But getting that, getting away from it for ten minutes or after the game, you kind of say, well, hang on, I shouldn't have really stayed on there. You know, but and it's a very tough environment. I know the referee stops the clock for injuries, but. Um, you know, there's pressure on to make a decision quickly, um, whether to get him off, to get him into a, a concussion bin, which isn't in the rabble, or, you know, even if the player does go into the concussion bin, the player's going to be, you know, two or three minutes later, the player's probably going to be confident enough that he can go back out and play. That's just the nature of players. They, uh, generally, they have unbelievable self-belief, uh, regardless of the, of the, of the evidence. And he'd be saying to the, to the doctor, listen, I'm fine, I'm fine. There's no clear, uh, test as such that you can do that quickly, you know. And what's the doctor going to do? You know, um, it's very, very hard for him. The, the doctors should maybe make the conservative judgment and take a player off the pitch who doesn't have concussion rather than leave the player on the pitch who does have concussion. You know, absolutely. That's, that would be my recommendation. On it, you know, I w- that's what I hoped would have came. Two things I would have hoped came from the bit of PR I did for uh, for in 2010. One is the longitudinal study starts, and the second was that. You know, if in doubt, take the player off. You know, and and I think that very rarely would a doctor make a bad call. To be honest, and I, I credit the Munster doctor for for making the decision he made. You know, in the match last week, I thought it was it was uh, you know incredibly brave. But, the, pro- the problem uh, is for, the the problem is for every Peter O'Mahony, there's a George Smith. You know, and we've seen it, and, and uh, people would have said Brandon Driscoll should have gone off uh, in the Six Nations, and he probably should have, but. That's where that's where things are going wrong. It's going wrong on at pitch level and making decisions there, and uh, they're just not conservative enough in making the decisions. You know, boxing is always disparagingly referred to uh, all the time about everything, but in boxing, if you get knocked down and you can't get up in ten seconds, you're gone. And to get back in the ring, you've got to get a brain scan. You know, it, although boxing is seen as is almost animal, it. The regulations governing boxers who are knocked out are actually much more stringent than they are for rugby players who get 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 concussed, which is a sort of strange position to be in. I think. Yeah, the NFL 
case that was settled recently, um, to the disappointment of many, because it was settled in such a way that the NFL are never going to have to explain their actions. Um, they've given a certain amount of money, smaller than what was expected by a lot of legal people, to to cover all the issues that went on. This is with the many families and former players, thousands of them, who were taking a case against the NFL, essentially saying that the NFL knew the dangers of concussion and at best ignored those dangers and and allowed the players to put themselves at risk. That's kind of... They brought out that statement. I think it was around a long weekend in America and it was just before the start of the NFL season. It did get a lot of coverage regardless, but it was forgotten about by the time the first match kicked off. Now they're into the middle of the NFL season, which is quite a, a short, as sporting seasons go around, quite a short, intense, much-hyped kind of a league. So that I'm I'm kind of wondering, will there be a will to even really get into this uh, at the highest level you're, you're talking about pitch level there Johnny which is very interesting but at the sort of highest level of the game is there going to be a will to really explore what needs to be explored before it's actually too late before some cases start coming up in rugby as have come up in NFL well I, th- I think in NFL they have changed behaviour uh, okay the, the, the money thing was sorted but I know in their practice sessions now there is no full contact and the players are fined if they do the, the kamikaze concussion tackles as, as they're calling them now so that has changed behaviour. And you'd like to see the IRB changing behaviour. And that's what it is, or educating the players. And not just saying it's concussion, but this is a disease like cancer or diabetes or any other serious disease, that if you continue pretending you're not concussed, if you deliberately have very low cognitive uh, measures before the season so that you don't have to get to a very high bar when you are measured for concussion, it's just bad for your health. And players... I think I still have the macho idea that you go through the concussion for the team, for the coach, for the trophy. I don't think that's, I don't think that culture has been put to bed yet. And I think the IRB's big issue is to get players and coaches to change their behaviour. And I don't think they're there yet. All right, Johnny Bernard, great stuff. Thanks a million for that. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. One of the problems here, I guess, is that it's kind of difficult for medical experts to be totally definitive on a lot of parts of this. Johnny quotes Dr. Witty Stewart in his piece, in one of his pieces, the one from a few weeks back. Say he's a consultant neuropathologist in Glasgow's Southern General Hospital. Essentially, this guy has made public what he believes to be the first confirmed case of early onset dementia caused by playing rugby. So this is kind of what we're talking about and what everyone fears might be coming down the tracks in a, a lot higher numbers. There, there are parts where this doctor is talking about how many concussions have to happen for a player to a, one player to create long-term problems. There's no direct answer to that. There are mm-hmm. some estimates from the doctors in the US who've been looking at the NFL, no direct answers. But what is clear, I think, judging by everything that we read about this, is that getting concussions in close proximity to each other for one player is not great news. Extremely, extremely bad good. And also this five-minute bin thing, just... Utterly ridiculous. I mean, it really seems like it was caught up on the back of a cigarette packet. Not that it's the only subject in rugby that people can't agree on at the moment, but even different authorities in rugby can't agree that this is actually a very good idea. The IRB say, yeah, it's great, yeah, and 
the ERC and others are saying, well, hang on, yeah, we don't really want to go as well down the, that, that road. Yeah, that the GA had a look at what uh, rugby is doing as a sport and kind of, you know, ignored it really. Um, and in a situation where, in so many areas, the GA has taken the lead from from rugby uh, and from professional sport. For them to have a look at the sort of the rugby protocols and say, right, this is nothing really that that we can't take anything from this really, uh, but it's it's a big issue in the yeah. GA as well. It's a big issue in all collision sports, not just rugby that uh, has this problem to to face down. I think the doctors are in quite a difficult position, really. I mean, I'm I'm surprised that that happened, you know, with with Omani in terms of the doctor actually taking him off. I mean, which is a doctor doing what he what he should do, but the diff, but the difficulty is that I'm supposed people have the idea of medicine as being a, Science, quite a lot of it is is also an art. It's two doctors are not necessarily going to draw the same conclusion from the same case. I mean, that doesn't mean to say both of them are equally right. One of them is probably more right than the other. That's the that's the way it works. But um, you know, there's a lot of interpretation involved. So if if I was a rugby club, would I necessarily want to employ the most scrupulous, the most oh cautious, pessimistic doctor who's always going to take the you know the to put the player's welfare absolutely first, mm. or am, am I going to want more of a doctor who's more of a... You're like a doctor... There's going to be more of a man about it. <laughs> who's going to look at the case and say, you know, is he concussed? There's a chance that he is, but there's a chance that he isn't as well. And send the player back out. You know, and, and which way do your, do your players spend more minutes on the pitch? You know, with Mr. Oh, I'm not so sure player welfare, or Mr. You know... <laughs> Medicine is an inexact science. I believe there's a chance that this player may not be concussed. Because that's the the fact. That's the fact of it, Kieran. No no two doctors are necessary. It's, you know, the patients, as patients, we want to believe that it's black and white, that there's a right and wrong answer, and that the doctor will always select the right answer. Uh, And doctors sort of trade on that to an extent, but to an extent they're just guessing like the rest of us. And sometimes, you know, if, if a doctor wants to be really, really cautious in all of his guesses... Maybe that doctor isn't, maybe a rugby club isn't going to want to employ that guy. Guess what's back? That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? You got the potatoes yeah. and the pudding. Huh? And the pudding. Oh, yeah, there you are. Born and bred, yeah, in uh, County Mead, a place called Navin. So, it's back. After a short hiatus while Pierce and I sat down and decided the creative direction of the Pierce Brosnan Emigrant Shoutout project. We return with another edition of the radio slot that has come to define 2013. But it sounds exactly the same as the... I mean, you, yourself and well, Pierce yeah, talked about creative direction and essentially agreed that it's just it's continuing perfect. in the same direction. It's absolutely perfect. Well, with one slight uh, alteration, which I will come to in due course. Uh, so I believe when the Oracle of Irish Broadcasting sits down to write, just try and define 2013, I think he, can, he will be able to do that in just five short letters. P, B, E, S... And of course, oh, so our it's a fr- nanogram of something. <laughs> our uh, first email is from Warren Maher. Hello, gentlemen. This is my attempt at standing out from the rest of the South Korean Pibezo crowd by posing at the North Korean border with my Pibezo sign, which I unnecessarily hid in my underwear. Uh, now, I know you're probably worried that this could start a dangerous trend where people all over the world try and out Pibezo each other by going to extreme places and putting their lives at risk. Not worried. I'm actually quite excited by that idea. But fret not, writes Warren. Uh, take my word for it that the North-South Korean uh, border is really quite safe, but I did have to get up very early to get the bus there 
So I'd appreciate a shout out. There does seem to be a lot of competition in South Korea. Oh, it's it's one of the amongst the P bezels. It's a real, real hotspot for P bezels for whatever reason. Uh, Neil Sinnott is in Luxembourg, but schlepped all the way to Marseille specifically to tread the ground once trod by Ken Early over there. So we thank you for that, Neil. And he is pictured on the in the velodrome with a hashtag P bezel sign. So we appreciate the effort. Email from Jerry McCarthy here. Uh, from a gang of hardy boys posing in their Euro 88 replica cycle kit on the Irish corner on the Alpe d'Huez. Thank you for the photograph. Uh, as a group, we drew motivation from such diverse inspirational figures as Lance Armstrong, the One Direction lads, Stephen Ireland, and P. Flynn, and challenged them all into one mission statement G-Bal, or get better at life. <laughs> so thank you for that, Jerry. Uh, Fergus Buckley wins the photograph of the week, uh, posing as he is in indoor India in the Madhya Pradesh with some Indian children holding a Pibezo sign in front of a disused aeroplane in the middle of a field, as you do. And uh, Brendan Cal has got a big old brain, and he doesn't mind telling people about it. Hi, lads. Greetings from a rainy Corvallis, Oregon, where I've just started a year-long... Oh, Stint is a Fulbright scholar at Oregon State University. Don't really want to talk about it. But uh, while you were all enjoying the hurling last Saturday, I was watching my beloved Beavers demolish the University of Colorado football team. There were 45,000 other souls there, but I'm pretty sure... I was the only one rocking the hashtag Bezel sign. This wasn't the only manifestation of Irish sporting culture on display, however. A young lad by the name of Darrow O'Neill was togged out on the Colorado team. I'm sure that's what they call it. His dad, Connor, played for Cork in the 1980s, while he also happens to be a nephew of Morris Fitzgerald. Wow, it's amazing. And appropriately enough, he's a punter. So all the best and go Beavs. But that, um, you know, if you're a true P. Bezo. Doesn't matter if you have. Okay, I guess you have to attend the big local sporting events yeah. such as that college game, but you got to at least have some sort of wireless or some sort of, I don't know, some sort of connection to the hurling final. You can't just ignore the All Ireland hurling final. Yeah, it's probably true. I mean, listen, he's he's you know in, in gro- well as a Fulbright scholar, I suppose. It's yeah, this guy knows to, better than yeah, the rest I mean, of us. Yeah, what's he's smarter than us? You don't even have a Fulbright scholarship, do you? Don't even know what it is. <laughs> uh, that last bit was, of course, part of the new direction me and Pierce have uh, decided upon which is to include random bits of mildly interesting trivia to take people's minds off the general feebleness of this critics-defying piece of online radio. <laughs> Remember, if you're living in Ireland and you want to feature on the Pierce Brosnan Emigrant Shoutout slot, then I'm sorry, but... Maybe you shouldn't be living here! Please, all correspondence to secondcaptains at irishtimes.com and we'll pop up a photograph a week on irishtimes.com forward slash secondcaptains to show your stupidity slash ingenuity to delete where applicable uh, to the world. Time now for U.S. Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Ryan, how are you this week? I'm great, guys. Good to be talking to you again. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, we do it all the time, but I never give my full propers to that uh, fantastic introduction. I don't want it to be taken for granted <laughs> that I enjoy hearing it all the time. Gets me in the right mood to talk to you lads. Yeah. Speaking of being in the right mood, uh, Brian, I'm not sure if we're in the right mood this week because myself and Kieran have been having a very heated debate off air before chatting to you about the topic of conversation. You see, I wanted to talk Tony Romo. 
And I was saying, look, we have to talk to the US Murph about Tony Romo. This yeah. guy, he had the game of his life, but in true Tony Romo, he went, went touchdown for touchdown with the great Peyton Manning, but in true Tony Romo style, he threw an intercept pass that lost him the game. Kieran said, no, 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 no. We talk too much NFL. We have to give Brian some baseball this week. Yeah, well, I think, I think Brian, uh, was it the, the great, uh, Boston Red Sox uh, player Manny Ramirez, who just used to say, "That's just Manny being Manny." Well, I, I I happen to think that what we saw from Tony Robo on Sunday was just Tony Robo being Tony Tony Robo. So I think we'll get plenty of opportunities to talk about. Much love for both of you guys all the time, but on this one, I think Kieran wins on two points. One, dropping the Manny Ramirez, Manny being Manny bomb, incredible recall, and yes, it was Romo being Romo. And two, I can't believe that he won the arm wrestling challenge and is going to give me a little baseball chat over Tony Romo. Guys, we've had that Tony Romo discussion. Just put that, just cue up any of our conversations for the last eight years, all right? I mean, my God, does a guy get more attention for never winning, winning one playoff game in his entire career? My God, Colin Kaepernick won more in his first month in the playoffs than Tony Romo's won in his 8, 10, 12 years. Now, listen, I mean, he's good and all, but, yeah, that was the game of the week, of course, uh, the Broncos and the, and the Cowboys. I'm a little... I'm a little burned out on the September-October love fest for Peyton Manning and the Broncos. I mean, you know, it's early days, boys, early days. Now, they are playing great, but, uh, yeah, that was a a legendary game. But my focus was on the 49ers that night who waxed the Houston Texans 34-3 and seemed to have righted their ship after a little uh, rough start. So, yeah, we're kind of hitting that... That October groove, it'll get real good come November and December. But October's baseball season, boys. Come All on. right, bro. I can see the Murphys are ganging up on me. I think this happened in school. <laughs> this happened in school on a few occasions. And I, I know early characters, all those Murphys. All those Murphys, yeah. So we'll talk baseball, Brian. We're going to talk Oakland A's, first of all. You touched on this with us, it could have been last week or the week before, about how well they're going with um, a method. I guess a method of recruitment, a method of managing a sports business, Moneyball, which is um, well known and which they they sort of started up there with the A's a number of years ago. But I guess I just assumed that everyone else had copied that and then the A's had to move on. But they're still having success with that formula. Yeah, well, this gets into a, a really interesting fact and, and maybe talking about with you guys in, in pre-production meetings because we do do pre-production meetings uh, for the U.S. Murph chat. <laughs> and that is that baseball is the only of the three major sports that does not have a salary cap. And in the NFL, you don't really have, you don't have disparate budgets in teams. Now, you do have certain owners that have more money from luxury boxes and stuff to maybe offer maybe more guaranteed money to certain players. It gets kind of technical. But ultimately, every NFL team it has to spend the same amount of money, hence leveling the playing field. The same is the deal. Same is true in the NBA, again, with some technicalities, something called the Larry Bird rule where you're allowed to keep a guy if you've had him before. Again, that's a technicality. But the general picture is, again, all NBA teams are coming to the table with the same amount of cards in their deck. Baseball is different because of the history of baseball being so dated back into uh, really old traditions. The owners have never, and the players, I should say, have never wanted a salary cap because they've become very powerful and very rich without a salary cap. And that means that teams like the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox and now the Los Angeles Dodgers, who I think we alluded to last week, can throw as much money as they want at players and assemble the biggest, baddest, most incredibly robust rosters you can imagine. There are other teams that don't have that kind of money. New York, Boston, and L.A. have TV money, local TV markets. The cable subscriptions and the eyeballs that have the cable subscriptions create those incomes for the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers. 
the Oakland A's don't have that. They are the second banana even in the San Francisco Bay Area to my beloved San Francisco Giants. They do not have a, a big TV contract. Therefore, they do not have a lot of income. Now, it comes down to, guys, this is get, uh, kind of an interesting topic. What an owner will spend on his team. In baseball, the owner can spend whatever the heck he wants. And the A's have an owner named John Fisher who is the heir to the fortune, the Gap, the Gap clothing, you know, Old Navy, all the clothes that have been outfitting the world for the last 20 years, right? I'm sure you guys have a pair of Old Navy jeans or shorts or shirts or, or blue jeans, whatever. That's John Fisher's money. He's, I think he's one of the five richest owners in, in baseball, but he chooses not to spend money on his team. So the A's and Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt in the movie, have had to do it on a budget. And this is kind of their predicament. And what's amazing is how successful they are in their budget. And this means that Billy Bean beats the bushes to find hidden players with hidden talents that aren't totally obvious, that aren't superstars like Alex Rodriguez or Derek Jeter or now Bryce Harper or Mike Trout. He has to go find kind of these hidden guys, and hence the whole concept of Moneyball, and that is to, to find talents and players that other scouts don't see so you can get them in a bargain. And here they are, guys, doing it again. They won the American League West for the second straight year, and they are right now in a pitched battle with the big-budget Detroit Tigers, best-of-five series to get to the American League championship, where the Boston Red Sox are waiting. They just eliminated the Tampa Bay Rays, another Moneyball team the Tampa Bay Rays, and the A's are doing it again. So all praise Billy Bean for his uh, general managing skills and all praise uh, to the A's. But, again, you have to wonder if you're a fan of the team why their owner won't spend more money on the team and they could have more resources. But as it is, they are matching the big money Detroit Tigers game for game with Game 5 Thursday night. Brian, the closest comparison I can think of for a couple of different reasons in the Premier League in England is Arsenal because they're – they also have owners who have a reasonable amount of, well, a fair amount of money, but it doesn't necessarily always get spent on players. And they have a manager who, when he first came in 10, 15 years ago, he was incredible. And I think he caught a lot of people unawares with his quite a scientific approach, but also his knowledge of the transfer market, particularly in France, but also elsewhere. So he be, have, the, have the pick of these young players that the other clubs just didn't know about because they didn't have those scouting networks in those areas at the same time. Now, when he goes back for those young, this, the equivalent of those young players 15 years later, he's got 10, 15, 20, 30 clubs, all with a lot of money, a lot with more money than him to actually go and get them. And he's quite, you know, he, he talks himself about financial doping is the way he describes it. The practice of some of the bigger clubs just go in and uh, bomb the likes of Arsenal out of the market there, but he hasn't managed to continue to be successful. Well, he has in his way. They qualify for the Champions League every year, but they don't win titles anymore. Uh, the fact that the A's are still even competing at that level would seem to be quite impressive because you can shock everyone with your money ball tactics, say, five, ten years ago, but the, that it's still working is almost more impressive. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and another point that, uh, that struck me there is what you just said about Arsenal. They make the Champions League, but they're not winning it. And that's the ghost that the A's are going up against, is that they make these playoff runs, but they haven't won a World Series. In fact, guys, they haven't even been to a World Series. So the question is, is what is success? You know, is success championship or bust? Unless you win the championship, you stink, your team's uh, useless, the, the year was a waste. Or is being entertained for an entire spring, summer, and fall by a gutty team that's outmanned and ultimately comes up short, is that success? Is that what you want as a fan? Well, the Oakland A's, that's what they've had to deal with because they haven't gotten over the mountain. And it gets a little bit inside baseball here, but what the A's are facing now is they face Game 5 with the Tigers on Thursday night or Friday morning your time is, is, is 
are they now built to the point where they can't advance any farther? And that's the question. Is For all the praise we heap on them, for all the movies that Brad Pitt makes, and for all the uh, journalists who come in and write about the genius of Billy Bean, is he incapable with his resources of attaining the heights of the Detroit Tigers or the San Francisco Giants or the New York Yankees or the Dodgers? And that's the, fi- that's the problem they have. Now, this year, this could be the year, guys. We could be talking about them in three weeks. But I will tell you this that on uh, Tuesday night in Detroit, the A's had a chance to close out the Tigers. It would be a slaying of the beast. Detroit's payroll, $149 million. Oakland's payroll, $68 million. Less than half of Detroit's payroll, okay? And they're up two games to one, and they went to Detroit for game four, and they had the lead twice at different points in the game, and the Tigers surged in at the end and caught them and beat them. Eight to six, and now this is kind of the talk here, in the, especially in the Bay Area and around baseball. Is can can this this gutty team does it like run into a wall eventually? Does it can't win these five game series against these bigger budget teams? That ultimately, over the spread of a long series, these bigger budget teams will win because they have the star who will stand up at the right time or will make the big play at the right time or that pitcher who will make the big pitch at the right time because he's the big money player and the A's just don't have it. That's what we're up against right now. This could be, you know, I had the feeling that this was the year that the A's were going to do it. I mean, I love their team all summer long. I loved everything about them, their pitching and their power and their camaraderie and their chemistry, those indefinable things. I kind of picked them to go to the World Series. Now, they might be eliminated by the time Friday morning rolls around, and it might be the same old song of banging their head against the wall. Or they could slay the Tigers and face the Red Sox in what would be a true David and Goliath matchup. Brian, you mentioned the Dodgers there, who we talked a little bit about last week. Magic Johnson is their main guy. Well, not necessarily the money man, but he's the face of the ownership structure there. Uh, Of course, a legendary L.A. Lakers player. How does that work in terms of L.A. as a sports town? It's a very different kind of city to Boston and some of these other cities that we've talked about in, in, in how it's built and maybe in their attitudes towards sport. And certainly the Lakers always seems to be the biggest show in town. Where does a Dodgers franchise fit into all that? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, by the way, because I realized after our chat last week that I had made a, a, a gaffe. I, I described their money man as Mark Guggenheim. His name is Mark Walter from Guggenheim Brothers Capital. So he works for Guggenheim Capital, and his name is Mark Walter, and he's the billionaire I'd be surprised who's funding if I, the Dodgers. Yeah, our listeners can be cruel, Brian, but if they, if they caught you up on that one, I think that's a little bit... I bet there was some yeah, savvy one or two. listener who knew. I bet somebody knew, and I apologize for that. But the best thing about these uh, podcasts is not wrong for long. We can come right back. And uh, in my old print days, those you made a mistake. It just stayed on the page forever, right? So here's the deal. Yeah, it's a great question about L.A. L.A. is a different town than almost any town in America. It is Hollywood, and the stereotypes we attach to it are sometimes unfair, but sometimes fair in that they are an image town. They're an image city, and they're at what's hot. You know, what director's hot? Is Michael Bay hot? Is Woody, you know, is uh, Tom Cruise hot? You know, whose movies are making money right now? Is Tom Hanks' movies making money? That's where the money goes. And so the Lakers have been the fashionable team because they've won the most championships. There was a time, it was a Dodgers town in the 60s, if you want to get into real history, they had these legendary pitchers named Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale from the 1960s who are two of the greatest names in baseball history, and the Dodgers won three World Series in a short span, and the Dodgers were everything. But then along came Magic and Kareem and the five championships, and then along came Kobe and Shaq, and then along came Kobe and Powell, and the Lakers over the last, I'd say, 30 years have had a stranglehold on the team. However, 
L.A. being L.A., the Dodgers are hot now because the Lakers are, are poised to decline. We all know Kobe's injury, and he's out for a long time, and the Lakers uh, appear to be an ancient team. Uh, the, the whole experiment with Dwight Howard and Steve Nash blew up in their face last year. So right now, the Dodgers are the team. Magic sitting by the dugout, high-fiving everybody. When they clinched, they just clinched their first-round series against the Atlanta Braves the other night. The celebration, it was like they'd won the World Series. In fact, they came under a little bit of criticism for over-celebrating, but what it was was a reaction to the way this town is feeling the Dodgers. So the answer is that the Dodgers have an incredible history, and of course one that dates well beyond the Lakers, uh, the Lakers when it gets into Brooklyn and Jackie Robinson and all that. So the Dodgers come at you with, a, with an amazing history. It's just that in the last 30 years it's been a Laker town, but right now with the Lakers down and the Dodgers in the National League Championship, that they, they are, and Magic Johnson, the most beloved uh, current L.A. celebrity, and guys, no NFL team to distract them. It's a Dodger town right now. Brian, just lastly, do the Oakland A's fans, are they happy enough with the way their club is run, or do they look at the likes of the Dodgers, not a million miles away, and say to their owner, why can't you, we're not asking you to spend quite as lavishly as that, but you can afford it, so why don't you give, give us some more money for players? It's a great question, and it gets, to, there's, it, it gets into sort of the identity of, of the fan base. And the A's, because they have been the underfunded team, have taken on over the last 15 years, especially when the, their owners have become real skinflints, the, the fan base has sort of taken on that personality. And many of the A's fans I know are, are proud of being the underdog. Right. They, 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 they sort of don't want to be those fancy boys. And in fact... It plays out very dramatically in the Oakland A's-San Francisco Giants rivalry because in 2000, everything changed when the Giants opened their beautiful new ballpark that's now called AT&T Park, which I know some of the Irish listeners have been to San Francisco and seen it. It's right on the water. It's gorgeous. It's spectacular. It sells out every night. It's a tourist attraction. If you guys came to town, we'd go there first night, and you guys would have a ball. And the Oakland Coliseum, where the A's play, is a decrepit place that even, not only is it unattractive, not only is it outdated, but guys, this summer, there were three different games in which the pipes clogged and raw sewage filled the clubhouse at both the A's and visiting clubhouse, and the players had to flee the clubhouse because of raw sewage backed up. And it was like the ultimate indignity, and yet at the same time, it was almost a badge of honor for these fans, and the players got defensive. Like, yeah, so what? Our, our park is ugly. Our park is outdated. Our park has broken pipes and raw sewage, but it's our park, darn it. And so there's like a... You guys know there's like a sort of a chippy pride, and there's a lot of talk about the A's trying to move to San Jose and capitalize on Silicon Valley money, Facebook, Google, Yahoo, all the money down there on the Silicon Valley Peninsula of San Francisco, and that they would move to San Jose and Cisco would name the field and they would become this big-budget team. But a lot of the fans in Oakland say, wait a minute, if we did that, we would lose our entire identity. We would no longer be the the scrappy underdogs who are trying to take down the Red Sox, trying to take down the Tigers. So it is a very, very, very good question about what you want as a fan and what your identity is as a fan. I'll end it with this, guys, and say you guys would love, because European, the one thing most Americans understand is that I think European soccer fans are, are much better and more spirited fans than American sports fans. The songs, the chants, the camaraderie, the pre-partying, the post-partying. seems like you guys have more of a cohesion in your crowds than we do, at least fun, the songs and all that. I would submit that Oakland A's baseball fans are about as close as we get to kind of a European uh, atmosphere. They bring uh, horns, they bring drums, they bring flags, they have funny songs and chants, they have great uh, give and take with the players on the pitch, 
and uh, they th- that has been a product of them being the ragamuffin fan. So mm-hmm. if they ever changed it, it would change their identity. Brian, it's been great to talk baseball. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm thanking you. We'll go back to football next week. Okay. I'd say that owner of the Oakland A's has the best deal going here. You know, we always look at how fans view their owners. Oh, what will Manchester United fans think of the Glazers? What will Liverpool mm-hmm. fans think of John Henry? But if we look at it the other way around, I'm sure mega rich business people, when they're taking over a club, maybe they don't think about the fans at all. But they certainly, in this case, think this is a pretty sweet deal. Mm. I own Gap. I'm a very, very, very wealthy man. I don't even have to fix the sewage issues at the ground because my idiot they fans... They wear their own excrement as a badge of honour. Yeah, these guys just got out there. They, they love the underdog status. Even though I'm richer than almost all the other owners, I don't have to put any money into the club. This is great. Yeah. We never have to win. We just have to do quite well. I've got a smart yeah. statistics guy. I don't want to generalise, but <laughs> the Oakland Athletics fans sound pretty, I don't know, Easy stupid. to <laughs> Well, look, maybe it's, cheap, a, maybe it's cheap for them. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if I don't know how much it costs to watch Oakland. I went to an Oakland A's game, but yeah. it was a number of years ago. And I, I do recall it being cheaper than going to the fancy... Fancy schmancy San Francisco for the San Francisco Giants. So maybe that's maybe they look at it as a good deal in that point of view. Okay, the club maybe is not, is not going to win the World Series, although I suppose it could happen, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what what keeps it interesting. Maybe they could do it, but in the meantime, the, the club is not like this, um, you know, predatory sort of parasitical organism in their life, which is trying to rip them off more and more and more every season. Which I think is the main reason why a lot of people really start to hate the teams that they. So the owner support. of Gap is bringing a sort of holistic, you know, non-consumerist um, approach to his ownership of. Well, teams. you know, okay. so he's he's got the owner, a lot. The owner of Gap. He is a predatory presence across the the grand, uh, you know, panorama of American life. Sure, but in this one area of baseball, maybe he can afford to run a run a club the old-fashioned way. Or kind of the old-fashioned way. I mean, it's cheap and cheerful. What's wrong with that? Coming up at six o'clock tonight. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? Still up to the football tomorrow, I guess. Yeah, a lot of talk. There's going to be a lot of talk about Ireland, Germany. Um, Germany, Joachim uh, Love, um, I saw yesterday you were um, looking Charmed at his, by him. his comments. He about, mentioned Gaelic football. Yeah. No more than that. He didn't mention anything bar the Rookie as well. He just no, said I mean, Gaelic football. Yeah, he didn't talk about, say, I don't know, Kevin McMenamin's wonder goal against Kerry or anything like that. No. That would have been really impressive, but he did say, I love that you look at Ken in the first, uh, when you're talking about Gaelic football, the first thing that pops into your mind is fellow Jude's man, well, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin McMenamin. No, look, he, he made the difference in the Skull championship, machine. In the championship uh, this, this year, as yeah. we know. But he did say that, look, the Irish fight, it's in their sporting tradition, Rugby, Gaelic football, they they fight until they fall over, he said. I mean, in the case of the Euros, we just fell over yeah. before the yeah. fight began. Yeah. Unfortunately. But. Yeah, it well, great. we fought right up until we fell over. It just so happened that we fell over in every game of the Richard two Dunn, yeah, Richard Dunn fell over after about a minute of the uh, game against Spain. We're going to talk about him. And also this whole nationality debate, which Jack Wilshire kicked off with Kevin Peterson. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He obviously had, did, had no Baden idea. Powell. He had no idea who Kevin Peterson was, I, I think. 
Because if he did, he would have been able to say, I mean, Peterson said essentially, you know, Wiltshire having said, oh, England, English, English team should be for English players. England for the English. He didn't quite say. And Peterson on Twitter says to him, oh, so I'm interested to know, interested in your definition of foreigner. Would that include me, Froome, Farah? He says, grouping himself with uh, these outstanding uh, British athletes, other British athletes of African origin. But, I mean, surely the thing about Peterson is that he's, his mother is English. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it's like... That makes him pretty English. It makes him pretty English. Yeah, but he, I don't think Jack Wilshire knew that, or he just would have said, Peterson, your mother's English. You know, yeah. Stop trying to get attention. And by the way, don't compare yourself to Froome and Farah. They're much better than you are. Well, Peterson's Peterson, pretty good. Peterson is pretty good. Is he, is he as good as Mo Farah? Is he by far the best cricketer in the world? No. No. Well, forget it. <laughs> okay, fair enough, Ken. You've charmed me. Just want to finish up by chatting for a few minutes to the new Kildare manager, Jason Ryan. Jason, we spoke to you in the not-so-distant past. You were finished up at Wexford. You're going to take on a coaching role at Kildare, and you seem quite excited by that prospect because it's something you greatly enjoy, and also it's, there are a lot less pressures involved in coaching, certainly time commitments, than there are in actually managing teams. You're back involved now, though, as a manager, having been coaching Kildare for the last while. Did you have to give it a lot of thought before committing to this new role? Yeah, well, like last year, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity for me to work with Kieran and to see how professional a setup that he has. He, delegation of roles, suitability of people to do specific roles was very, very important in how he set up his, his, his group, his management group. And um, I suppose prior to being involved, I, I hadn't seen that being done successfully. Um, I went straight from playing into management, so probably hadn't seen the dynamic that you require or a dynamic that might be, you know, successful or might help it with with success. And um, now after experience and free, I realised that if I get the right people doing the right jobs, that I can take a bit of a step back from certain roles and prioritise what I need to do. So um, You were maybe being a bit of a yeah, a bit of a control freak at Wexford? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And in on at the time you think, no, I'm just trying to work hard but on reflection there were some things that I was probably suffering a bit from uh, being a little bit uh, overzealous in some of the things that I was doing but look you, you live in your own and I suppose if you go through each year learning something as you go along you'll, you'll hopefully improve Looking at whether or not to take on the role I, I suppose in the pro column I don't know if you're the type that sits down and writes these things down in pros and cons but certainly uh, a committed panel of players who you're already familiar with uh, combined with the success that Kildare's had at underage would make this quite, a, quite an attractive job I would have thought yeah, it, it does. But the, the most attractive part was that I, I I worked with the guys last year. The year didn't finish as we wanted. We were really happy with the start of the year, happy with the O'Byrne Cup, happy with the start of the National League, happy with retaining first division status and, and getting to the semi-final. Um, but we felt as the year went on that we... It, it, we just didn't, I, I didn't feel closure. We didn't get the field closure, and I was obviously gutted when uh, Kieran was uh, when the vote went as it did, and I please. You know, I was looking forward to working with him for another year, but I was gutted at the thought that I wasn't going to get another chance to work with the players and to try to put some of the things we felt were wrong last year right. So my strongest feeling now with doing this job is relief that I'm going to get another chance. Did you talk to McGinney before taking it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I suppose you don't want to go into great detail on what was said, but did, did you ask for his blessing as such? No, but like I, I suppose with anyone I've worked with over my six years at Intercounty, I want to 
when I'm working with them, I want to have a good working relationship. But I, and as part of that, I want to I want to be on a, a, a be able to work with people and, and be be friends with them. So I I have developed a good relationship with Kieran during the co- during the course of the year and. Um, you know, I inevitably was going to speak to him about the about the job and and whatnot. But um, he, I suppose, from from his point of view, he has his own project now, and he's going to be focusing in on that. And whatever happens in Kildare, I'm sure he'll be interested. And after being there so long, he'll have a, a somewhat of a vested interest in looking on from afar. Um, and regardless of what changes we make and also of what Kildare ha- do this year or how they play or how we behave or whatever there's going to be a lot of uh, things that are influenced by uh, Kieran McGinney So the two of you were left it on pretty good terms then? Oh yeah absolutely Yeah what about the players, uh, Jason? They had obviously publicly supported McGinney and they were, you said you were good at They were also good at that McGinney lost that role. Did you have to canvas their opinion before taking over just to see how they were feeling about things? To a certain extent, you know, I spoke to some players, but it wasn't a case of, um, you know, it would be fairly, I think it would be a very artificial conversation if I was to ring up one of the fellas and say, listen, if I was the manager, would you be happy? Yeah. What's he going to say? You know, it's it's really hard. Um, so, yeah, as much as you feel that players are going to be very, very honest, it's it's a very awkward situation to put them in. But I suppose you put out feelers and figure out how what kind of impact you'd have. But after last year, you'd have you'd have a good you'd have a good idea. Like I've had a year working with them. I know what my relationships are like. I knew how how I got on with various guys in the group and uh, what kind of dynamic that we had. And I'd like to think that I'd be able to work with them in a positive way in the year ahead. But if I didn't think that, I wouldn't I wouldn't be doing the job. Uh, the vote that you referred to in relation to uh, Kieran losing his job uh, was an insight, I think, for everyone inside and outside the county of the high expectations that uh, people in Kildare have about the about the team. Do you think that you have to win silverware to be a success? I mean, that was kind of the message coming out of that that vote for for better or worse. I suppose in some ways, yes, but um is who who measures success you know the manager might measure success different than the players and the players measure different to the supporters and some of the pundits then measure different than everybody else so so i don't know like we'll have our we'll have our aims our targets for 2014 and, and maybe they'll match up to what the supporters have or maybe they won't but all we can work is within what we feel are appropriate targets and goals and, and work towards those. Uh, Jason, just on uh, Leinster, first of all, I guess the, the, I mean, Dublin have dominated there for the last number of years and now they've become the best team in Ireland, two All-Ireland titles in three years. You always did well against them in Wexford and really should have won at least one of the games in the championship that you played against them. It certainly seems to me that you don't take in the sort of defeatist attitude maybe that some people do against them and I guess that's what the message you might be trying to put over to the Kildare players that there's no need to fear these guys. No, but I, I don't think any team necessarily fears other teams. Certainly not before the game, and certainly not at the start of the game. But as, as so, the game some teams on. seem sort of tentative, though, when they go in against Dublin. It looks as though they're not, you know, they don't really express themselves in the way that maybe Wexford did. Possibly, but you know, when you're when you are preparing a team, how much of the preparation is skill based, how much is tactical, and how much is mental. And you can be prepared physically. The, the best possibly and skill-wise the best possibly but it's, it's very hard to make sure that everybody's prepared mentally for the for the challenge you're going to face Dublin will hit you with um, pace 
skill levels, uh, great work ethic. They pitch in so many different ways that it's it's not like you, you know you're playing against a very very good team. So I think this Dublin team are, are getting better. The team this year are hitting for more areas than what the team did in 2011. So um, it's kind of scary for maybe for the rest of the country to see if they if they develop again in 2014 from this year how good they're going to be. Okay, we'll see how good they're going to be next year, Jason. Best of luck with it. Thanks for talking. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Yeah, it's a fair enough point uh, that Jason raised there about when I asked him, did he canvass the opinion of the players? It sounds like he had so, one or two informal conversations, but as he says himself, what are they going to say to the new manager? Well, if they. No, if, we don't like you. Yeah, if they said that, then at least uh, well, you maybe know if, where they said that, if they said that outright, if they were ballsy enough to say, all right, we don't want you to manage the team, then I yeah. guess maybe he might think differently about it. But clearly, he has a good relationship with them, and they do like him. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the easiest, most palatable appointment for the players as well. Yeah. I, I think so. You know that they, that they know that there's going to be, a, a, you know, a line from the previous management which they were obviously very, very much in favour of right through to this. And it's also not kind of it's not a number two getting a first shot at being a number one. I mean, what Jason Ryan did with Wexford and the relationship he had with his players in Wexford was about as good as anything I've ever come across. I mean, the Wexford players just loved him. So if the Kildare players aren't happy with this, then. You know, I think that they would that they would be. It's uh, probably time for them just to get focused on their on their football, really now, isn't it? Yeah, and not that, not that I want to belittle their their concerns, but the thing is 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 over. You know, I mean, McGinley's been gone now for a while. He's not going to be coming back. So. I'm pretty sure as many as nine Leinster players are walking around with unusually big grins on their faces. Oh, Keen, God, wait for the names. Keen, this is what I was getting at the other day, but unfortunately, I didn't have the book in front of me at the time. Yeah, Keen. Uh, Straussy, Rossi, Shawnee, they had unusually big grins in their faces, as did Jamie, Mads, Draco, Carnes, and myself. <laughs> <laughs> Sexto. He should have included his Sexto's. own name there at the end. Yeah. yeah. So. Is that what he is? He's called Sexto. I think he's Sexto. Sexto he's Mads. Yeah. Ian Madigan. All oh, right, okay. Fair enough. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Email us, secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Bebo. Yeah, we're on MySpace as well. Teletext. Yeah. Just <laughs> Teletext page 221. Yeah, you can find us wherever you wherever you go look. If you look, if you search hard enough, you will find us. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll chat to you later on for Second Captain's Football. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 